the character was a lot darker. I was also dealing with the fact that she was a woman in trying to exist in a very physical time, a very brutal time, where she was pretty much at the mercy of some dubious characters. And the things that she had to do to survive, in some cases, were quite ingenious. In other cases, were just very, very savage. So she's quite a complex character in that respect. That was the voice of Brian O'Sullivan, a New Zealand-based novelist of Iron Age Ireland. And I'm Martin Nutty. And I'm John Lee. Welcome to our latest Global Irish Nation conversation here on Irish Stew. This episode is sponsored by Chantella, your all-in-one business launchpad in the United States. Committed to excellence and execution, Chantella helps enterprises enter or expand in the U.S. market through bespoke project management and strategic planning solutions. Create and realize your vision with Chantella, where they invest their passion in your future success. To learn more, go to Chantella.space. Yes, .space. It's a thing. Hey, back in Irish Stew here. And, uh, you know, Martin, I think it's only natural that a lot of our guests are based in Ireland. And the fact that both of us live in New York City, we've had quite a few guests from the New York City area. But we're always looking to expand that uh, global Irish guest roster. And uh, we're going to take Irish stew as about as far afield as we've ever gone. Where are we going next? Yeah. So our next guest takes us over to the other side of the world, New Zealand specifically, and while that might seem like a long way from Ireland, our guest is devoted to making Irish mythology and culture accessible to a global audience in a more accurate and entertaining way. He is author of a number of book series which focus on Iron Age Ireland. Specifically, he has taken some of the most famous Irish myths and reimagined the nature of Ireland at that time, featuring the stories of both Fionn McCool, Leah Lucra, and other stories of Ireland's deep past. With that, I'd like to welcome Brian O'Sullivan to Irish Stew. Welcome, Brian. And to you, Vicarjan. Thank you very much for having me. And, and good morning to you, Brian. It's, it's evening for us the day before. <laughs> yes. So we're going to kick it off this way, Brian. After reading some of your books, I get the sense that the past is very present for you. Now, that's a supposition, but... Is there a place in Ireland that makes it even more so? Um, I, I guess uh, Ireland has uh, such a, a long history um, with it that um, it, it's kind of impossible to, to look at the present without understanding some of the past. That's a bit of a cliche, of course, but um, really you, 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 you can't have a real sort of sense of where you are if you don't understand the context of how you got there in the first place. And um, with history and sort of cultural belief systems and so on like that, it really does. If you if if you get your head around that, it actually um, gives you a sort of um, uh, a much better perspective on where you are and where you potentially could go in the future. So, do you have any particular site that a favorite site in Ireland that you visit? Or go back to? Yes, I mean, uh, all my family are kind of from uh, West Cork, or rather a large section of them are. So I'm, I'm very much linked to the Bear Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And um, 
there's a term that they, they use basically uh, in in Maridum. They they say there's um it's the place where you stand, even though you might not be living there. It's more the the concept of home, but home related to a sense of connection in terms of both um, fakapapa, which is genealogy, but also um, emotional connection. Um, so for me, Bera is very much uh, not just um, because I've got bones in the ground there going way back. But I've also got a huge sort of uh, emotional connection to it from having sort of grown up there quite a lot as a, as a kid. So tell us, Irish is a language that you overtly, actively use in your books. So tell us about the meaning of the name O'Sullivan. Oh, oh, Suluan. It's, um, well, yeah. I mean, a lot of Irish names, and the first thing to say is a lot of Irish names have been anglicized, so the actual meaning has been taken away from them. Um, of Suluan, it comes from the Ogonyukt, um, who were based sort of central iron up around sort of Muscreen, around um, uh, Cashel. And uh, one sort of sub-branch uh, of that particular grouping uh, were the Osuluan. Um there's uh, numerous theories as to where the actual name comes from. Um, one of the sort of the more um, amusing is that it comes from the word Sulawan, as in one eye, which uh, it, it's just not the case. That'd be too easy. <laughs> yes, I can see clearly. <laughs> I can see clearly now. But um, yeah, it, it all depends. There's, there's a lot of different sort of derivations given to it. A lot of that stuff is, is is so old that it's it's kind of hard to actually work out. Um, I, I can't honestly remember the last time I, I read the background on that. But um, when they came down, the Osulawan sort of split into the Osulawan Moor and Osulawan Vera. And the Osulawan Vera were mostly based around the Bear Peninsula. Osulawan Moor were predominantly around the uh, sort of the Kerry uh, side of that, of that peninsula. Well, Brian, let, let's go to the Bear Peninsula and hear a little bit more about you know, your origin. We really don't know too much about you yet. We couldn't find, uh, you know, we don't have your resume. Uh, t- tell, tell us a little bit about how you grew up and, and how it was so imprinted on you that you're kind of, li- in a way, you're living there right now today. Yeah, I, I intentionally kind of keep my profile low in terms of um, uh, media. I don't put my uh, photograph out anywhere. And uh, I, I'm a pretty private person in any case. I grew up in Cork. My dad was, he was an O'Sullivan from uh, Beira. And of course, the saying down in Beira is you throw a stone in the bush, you'll hit an O'Sullivan. Uh, it's basically the whole peninsula. You're either Harrington, O'Sullivan, and a few Murphys as well, too, predominantly. Um, you walk through Castleton Bear, you'll just see all those names predominantly on all of the shop fronts there. And um, yeah, so I was very lucky in that uh, even though we were based in Cork City, my dad used to bring us down uh, to West Cork pretty much every weekend. And um, sometimes we'd stay down there for the sort of summer holidays as well. We were particularly lucky in that we were kind of brought up and um, we had a sort of a house down by the sea and um, there was really nobody around at that stage. And uh, we had a bit of an idyllic lifestyle in that we would just head out um, in the mornings and sort of come back whenever we felt like it later in the day. Uh, it's, it's a sort of a sense of freedom. Uh, I don't think our own kids have ever kind of experienced. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of my Dublin childhood in a way. And I think the stuff that we used to do as children, um, we live in an era now where it feels like everybody is, needs the feel for constant connection. And, you yeah, know, literally as a child, I was out and about for hours on end with my mother and having no idea where I was or what I was doing. Um, 
I think something has been lost a little bit, you know, in that. I also noticed I came across a blog posting where you kind of told a story about Ballinaspittle, which is a uh, an interesting place just uh, north of Kinsale. I remember it well from 1985. It was the place of the um, the weeping statues or moving statues in Ballinaspittle, and apparently you were down in Kinsale right when that happened. And family used to do a bit of sailing, I think, from what, from what I could tell. But uh, talk to us about sailing and, and those statues. And how does that fit into Irish mythology? <laughs> um, yeah, again, I, I was lucky to sp- sort of spend uh, my sort of late teen years uh, down in Kinsale, where I did do quite a lot of sailing. Um, again, I had that freedom of being able to take the boat out and just disappearing for you know most of the day or um, and, and coming back. Uh, for a long time, I was actually living uh, on my dad's boat on the marina in Kinsale. Uh, so I'd spend summers down there living on on that particular boat and um, pretty much sailing on my own sort of very small boat during the during the day. Um, the whole balance spittle thing uh, was uh, quite uh, a period in Ireland where you had uh, the the moving statues. Uh, I think it was the the eighties, but uh, it started off in balance spittle where there was. Um, uh, two women passing the, the one of the sort of the statues, the holy statues out there, happened to notice that it was moving. Are um, not quite sure in what detail, but uh, it, it turned up on the the news uh, probably the next day or so on. The next uh, day after that, there was probably about fifty or sixty people there, and uh, again, most of them were sort of swearing it was it was moving. Um, so within a very short period of time, you had hundreds of people. <laughs> turning up there every day praying and so on and uh there was uh some, I, something i'd never seen in Kinsale was a double decker burst had actually come down from court it was literally so many people coming down um balance spittle is probably what be about 15 20 minute drive from from Kinsale. um so we never actually bothered going there um because it was too close uh, so it's always something you'd sort of do the next day you know when you weren't so busy um, so uh, Ireland kind of went through this kind of uh, hysteria at, at the time. Um, uh, the, this, the sort of the, the moving statues spread throughout the country and uh, it was on the news literally every night there was another statue was moving or doing something. And uh, I do remember seeing this interview with this uh, kid and he was saying that there was like angels flying around the sky and it was like it was really hysterical kind of stuff, you know. Uh, which is, I think the word hysteria, kind of a religious hysteria had sort of uh, just swept the country. Um, It then all came to kind of a sudden close when um, some guy uh, attacked it with a hammer and uh, to to prove a point, he went in and he actually smashed up the the statue. And um, even though they tried to repair it after that, um, it uh, it never really moved that much again. And suddenly everybody didn't want to talk about it anymore. And uh, everybody was a little bit embarrassed by the whole thing. Um, yeah, it was uh, a fascinating period we kind of lived through that sort of very intense sort of few months um, over that one summer. <laughs> it's an interesting, uh, and of course, uh, I remember Christy Moore lampooning it. That's uh, right, yeah. He's one know, of many, it the, yeah. It, it became a song, kind of a was it Delirium Tremens, you know, That's I, right, I think. Yeah. It was written up quite a bit in Fintan O'Toole's book, that Martin, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. Yep, yeah. that's how that's how I'm familiar with it. Yeah, ourselves alone. Yeah, yeah. What, no, what was it? Uh, I'm blanking on the book name. Yep. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it kind of marked a sort of a period because uh, it was only a few years later that um, Father Ted started coming out, and you had this kind of um, it, it marked a kind of a changing point, I think, in sort of Irish culture. And um, 
where you had the very sort of conservative religious uh, stuff and then then you had this kind of rejection of it all uh, in terms of lampooning comedy and so on and um yeah um that kind of um balanced spittle period sort of what was the peak of one leading into the other in a sense Brian, what uh, you're a writer. I'd be interested to see some of the other, hear about some of the other interests of your life. What, uh, like, for instance, in academia, what what grabbed you? Did academia grab you at all? Did education have a particular meaning for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was educated, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> um, I, I went to uh, University College Cork, where I actually uh, studied microbiology. Um, I'm actually a microbiologist by, by um, profession, even though I haven't actually done anything to do with bugs for well over 30 years or so. Um, in Ireland, uh, at that time, during the sort of the 80s, early 90s, um, there was a huge number of people passing through Irish universities. And of course, there was no work for them. So as soon as you came out of university, you basically had to emigrate unless you wanted to sort of work, um, unless you were lucky enough to get something in Ireland. So I was kind of one in that wave of, of people who uh, got the degree and sort of the next day I, I was off overseas. Um, particularly in, in when you had a science degree as well, to about 80% of people who do science degrees uh, never actually end up in science. They end up in completely different um, um, sort of uh, industries. And that was pretty much the case for me. Um, so I left Ireland straight afterwards. I um, went over to London where I was living with a bunch of Irish guys for a few months. Um, then I ended up in uh, Birmingham, where I probably worked for about a year and uh, really did not enjoy uh, my time in Birmingham. So I, um, at that stage, I'd met a, a French woman who I was uh, living with and we moved to France. Uh, and then I ended up staying in France probably for about four years. Um, yeah, so after after that, I ended up in New Zealand. <laughs> so I've pretty much been following uh, women around the world. Essentially, I've been kind of <laughs> laid by the by the nose. Uh, so my my partner is a Maori woman who um, I met in France at a at a party, and um, we had a kind of a long distance relationship for a while, and um, um, eventually ended up coming to New Zealand. And that was actually by accident because we were trying to get into Australia, but um, it just proved easier to get into New Zealand at the time. Brian, we, we always uh, talk about, you know, kind of versions of Irish identity and, and how it changes. You've lived in so many countries in different situations. How did your sense of Irishness change uh, by location and, and over the years? Uh, I guess it changed in terms of it actually got stronger. Uh, that's one of the reasons I... Uh, when you're away from your culture, you suddenly realize what you're missing. Um, you have this uh, absence. Um, so you, you miss people who talk like you, who have the same cultural um, references, uh, same sort of sense of humor and stuff like that. So when you find yourself bereft of that, which I certainly did when I was in France for, you know, for four years. And uh, for that first two years, I didn't even speak English. Um so and then coming to the other side of the world, which literally is as far as you can possibly get from Ireland. You know, you, if you travel any further, you'd actually get closer to Ireland. Um, but um, you have that absence and uh, you try and find that absence or you try and fill that absence rather by um, either hanging out with other Irish people, which I certainly did, uh, or becoming more uh, involved in your culture uh, through language, music, uh, or in my case, uh, also through writing. So 
We'll explore the the writing thing, obviously, in some detail here, but I'm curious uh, about your experience in New Zealand as an Irish person. How culturally engaged are you locally there? Is there kind of Irish groups, et cetera, or, you know, what does that look like? Um, New Zealand um, are, are usually, uh, New Zealanders are very, very um, positive in terms of uh, the Irish connection. Uh, we have a good rep here. Uh, we also tend to have a good rep with uh, Maori. So because we've both been colonized and we have that sort of shared experience, it, it, you actually have a lot more street cred. Um, you have more street cred than Pahakaha, who are the sort of white uh, New Zealanders. So it allows you to uh, entry into certain parts of New Zealand culture, which even a lot of New Zealanders don't get to see. Here in Wellington, uh, when I first got here, so I've been here uh, over 20 years now, and um, um, there was, I was probably one of the first, uh, the few Irish people here. There was a lot of uh, Irish immigrants that kind of come over in the 60s. And I went to the Wellington Irish Club and um, uh, most of the people there were like in their 70s or, or 80s. It was really, you know, and the, the, you had a huge amount of people came over around the 60s Then nobody until about sort of the, 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 the 90s. So you had this kind of huge gap of uh, an age gap in between. Um, since then, of course, um, with Irish people traveling a lot more, a lot of people go to Australia and then do one year in Australia, then they come to New Zealand. And um, New Zealand is, is a lot more attractive, I think, to Irish people than Australia because it's a lot more European or, uh, in terms of style. Uh, and also the climate, it's a bit more like Ireland, a bit more rain here. And um, um, yeah, it's it feels more comfortable. It's like a comfortable shoe. Uh, it'll never be home. Ireland is always going to be home, but uh, it's a good place to live, to raise my kids. And of course, uh, I stay here because of my partner. Brian, I, I know that in uh, 2018, Ireland opens its first embassy in New Zealand. Uh, a friend of mine, Peter Ryan, was the ambassador. Did you happen to know Peter? Yeah, yeah, I know Peter. He's a, he's good crack. He's uh, He came in here like a cannonball. And uh, <laughs> yeah, suddenly where you had a sort of a disparate uh, number of kind of Irish groups, uh, we had a, you know, we have a language group and we have lots of music groups and so on and so forth. And he pulled it all together. Um, he achieved a hell of a lot over here. Uh, it was quite interesting to sort of see him uh, undercut the the English embassy as well too while he was here in terms of uh, uh, dealings with, with Europe. And he would always make it sound like he had nothing to do with it. That's he right. was <laughs> somewhere behind the scenes, but all you guys are the ones who did it. That's you know, right. So. Yeah, a very very clever man and uh, a lot of fun to spend time with. Yeah, I think his uh, his latest posting, I believe, is in Nigeria. But uh, he That's obviously right, yeah. spent some time in New York and uh, yep. cre- created quite an impression in New York as well. So that's yeah, absolutely. where John crossed paths with him. But uh, I want to move forward uh, closer to your writing now. You have a company called Irish Imbas, I-M-B-A-S. That's a strange word. Tell me about it and the company uh imbus is is basically uh, another word it's the irish word for knowledge but um it's it's actually quite a very it's a very old word essentially um with a lot of sort of uh esoteric kind of associations um olus is probably the the modern 
term for for uh, for for knowledge or information. But back in the day, uh, people who used imbus were basically kind of setting themselves apart or giving themselves airs in terms in terms of their their knowledge and so on. Uh, so it seemed perfect for me, to be honest. You know, so. Um, because uh, a lot of the the stuff I do uh, deals with kind of esoteric um, um, origins, um, it just felt like a natural fit. Yeah. And so when you when you set up the company, was the intention always to be as a publishing house for your books, or is that a subset of your overall plan? Uh, basically, the real focus of our shimpas is the sort of the imparting of knowledge, uh, cultural knowledge. Uh, I started off uh, through books because it was the easiest way to do that. But um, I'm, I've done a few other sort of ways, uh, you know, through other media as well, too. Uh, at the moment, the focus is on on books. But basically, it's, a, it's a, an educational uh, purpose. Um, but uh, the key thing about um, cultural uh, education is that you have to do it in a way that's uh, interesting um, and you pretty much can't let people know that you're doing it uh, otherwise it you know <laughs> people enjoy stuff uh, and they learn stuff if they're actually uh, enjoying it if you give them a textbook a lot of the time they uh, you know uh, it won't get through but if you actually mix it up into the um sort of a fiction story or a thriller or whatever like that uh, whether that media be through books or film or computer games whatever you can actually impart a hell of a lot more knowledge and uh, that was one of the big struggles i had because um when i first started uh looking at all this stuff uh i had um i had a position in and uh, in the stout center in the victoria university where i was a writer in residence for a year uh, that allowed me access to an amount of data um an amount of uh, information on sort of um irish you know ancient irish narratives which i'd never had before and uh to be totally honest the the amount of of information there was absolutely overwhelming. Um, what was also overwhelming was the fact that uh, as I was reading it, I, I did a focus predominantly on the sort of the Fenian narratives, uh, and that's a body of work that kind of goes back about a thousand years. So there's a thousand years of uh, you know obviously writing from the fifth century uh, records, etc. But there's you know there, there's just narratives. You know you could spend your whole life analyzing or or writing stuff on that. But the, the really interesting thing was that nobody knew anything about this stuff. We've uh, been collecting this in Ireland for you know hundreds of years, and uh, nobody's aware of it. And uh, um, nobody actually understands it, apart from the, the academics, who do a very good job, and they do their best to try and get out there. But um, it's very difficult to do that if you're coming from an academic angle, where if I come sort of from a fiction or entertainment angle, I can actually get that information across a lot more effectively. Brian, why is this important for you? Why is that feeling of imparting the knowledge, imparting the cultural knowledge? What what is it that makes that so important for you? Um, Again, I I guess it comes back to when I first came across all the information that I obtained through my research. Uh, My initial instinct was, uh, why the hell don't I know this? You know, why has nobody ever told me this? And uh, I think that would be the reaction of most people. Um, a lot of Irish people don't actually have a, a clear understanding of their own culture, to be honest. Um, um, people still talk about, um, you know, fairy forts and uh, they, they, they speak and think with a kind of an English colonization uh, perspective. And uh, um, 
when you speak in English or when you use English concepts, it, it's a very different way of thinking than if you were thinking in um, Irish and using Irish concepts. So, um, again, one of the, the things I try and get across in the books is I introduce these little concepts, uh, which uh, people don't actually know about. But if you introduce them into the story, um, they, they learn them, um, to, despite their best wishes, perhaps in some cases. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are, are any of these concepts that you're advancing hidden away in your stories? Are any oh, of these absolutely. concepts controversial? Are they controversial at uh, all? Are other people? Not yet, because I keep it, a lot of it in the, in history. Um, I, I think in the next year or two, you'll start seeing a bit more controversial stuff. There's this whole industry around mythology, which is uh, probably uh, quite false, to be honest. It's based on something that doesn't actually exist. And uh, it's based on misassumptions. And I guess a lot of the work that I sort of see myself doing in the next year or two is kind of uh, putting that stuff out there. The way I've always understood uh, mythology, uh, are, well, people, I'm using the term very generically here, are, was that the Irish myths originated from an oral tradition. The Christian monks then basically wrote down some of these myths, putting their own spin on it. And then come the 19th century with the kind of Celtic revival, the would-be Irish nationalists, primarily Anglo-Irish, decided that they were going to create, uh, you know, revive this mythology. So they put their own spin on it. And... As I understand it, what I learned was is basically that kind of Lady Gregory nineteenth, you know, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century of Irish mythology. So, you t what are you telling me? How right did she get this stuff, and how off base, or how much has been omitted, or you know, it's it's. I know this is just a very small subject area, you know. But it's a big can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you've sort of heard uh, about mythology in the 13th to last 50, but probably in the last 100 years, uh, has been based around uh, English uh, speakers uh, explaining another person's culture or another people's culture. Uh, Lady Gregory, uh, I don't think she was an Irish speaker. Uh, and she uh, herself, uh, it, it was a big thing at the time. So herself, Yeats, a whole bunch of other uh, writers, None of them are Irish speakers, um, apart from the, the future president, um, who, who was actually an Irish speaker. Uh, but a lot of these uh, writers went off and they basically reinterpreted uh, manuscripts that had been translated um, from uh, Irish into English. And uh, they, they basically grabbed the ball and ran with it and invented uh, this kind of false set of narratives, uh, which today is what we call mythology. So mythology actually has, uh, quite frankly, not much to do with Ireland, to be honest. Um, mythology is essentially where one culture takes another culture's uh, cultural belief systems and um, uh, creates uh, narratives out of them, uh, reduces them to fairy tales, folk tales, uh, that sort of stuff. So would it be fair to say, am I detecting this right, that you don't like the word mythology? when it comes to describing these Irish stories? No, we're, we're, we're kind of stuck with the word. Uh, when mm -hmm. I talk with the Irish academics, uh, they notice. And uh, if you look, um, if they're any good, when, when they use the word mythology, you'll see two um, you know, uh, marks on either side. 
mm-hmm. there isn't another uh, term to use at the moment. And um, uh, I guess what I, my work will be over the next few years is trying to come up with a different word, a different terminology. Uh, again, um, like I said, it, it's uh, when you're trying to talk about metology with, with uh, people, you, you can't, uh, unless you have a common language, a common terminology, it's impossible to have a sane conversation. So it's a bit like, trying to explain chemistry to somebody who doesn't understand what an atom is. And that's kind of where we're at. We're at that situation where we, A, have to come up with a kind of a, um, an agreed understanding of what we're actually talking about. Because mythology means completely different things to every person you talk to. You have tourism mythology. You have um, Instagram mythology. You have political mythology, you know, it, um, and you often hear uh, sort of Hollywood producers talking about the mythology of their series, which makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, yeah. So at, at its very base, uh, its very most fundamental mythology is uh, stories that you tell to understand the world around you. And if it's not helping you to understand the world around you, and if it's not personally relevant, um, then I think you're you're struggling to to, to use the, the terminology in any sort of uh, meaningful sense. So I noticed you used in your writing the the term, I think it was Irish cultural belief systems, yeah. or, or something along those lines is probably your preferred term rather than mythology. It's probably a more ac- accurate reflection. But my question is is and we're kind of, you know, we talked about, you know, how the 19th century Anglo-Irish basically created this version of these uh, belief systems. But can you possibly come to an understanding of this stuff without a deep understanding of the language? I notice you use Irish words quite a lot in your books. So what's your take? What, what's the best way to kind of teach this stuff? Oh uh, No, you're absolutely right. So basically, um, you... You can't discuss Irish mythology, and again, I have to use that that term. I really dislike using that term, but there isn't any other one. <laughs> uh, you can't discuss Irish mythology unless you have a, a grounding in in the Irish language, because uh, language uh, trans, uh, language carries um, cultural ways of thinking. So you can translate, but there's no such thing as an exact translation. So when you're translating something from one language into another, you're basically, sometimes the concept that exists in one language doesn't exist in the other. Uh, So you need a hell of a lot more words to actually explain one word in one language. So if if I take the example of something like, um, in French, for example, there's the expression, elle me fait le lapin, elle me pose un lapin. So she, 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 Literally, she gave me a rabbit, which basically means she stood me up. So if you tried to translate that, you know, I mean, you're, you're translating a concept which literally is is nonsense in another language, you know. And it's exactly the same when you translate concepts from um, Gaelic into English. Um, it's a bit like Schrodinger's cat. You're completely changing it. And, um, you know, and that that's why a lot of uh, what you sort of see in terms of when people sort of claim um, Irish mythology or Celtic mythology, uh, if it's an English program, um, they're probably starting on a negative. You know, you're, you're probably starting from a, a no-go area. Brian, I think from the conversation so far, the listener may not have a really great sense of what your novels are all about yet. <laughs> We've been having kind of an academic discussion, but these are not academic books. They're full of action, adventure, 
blood, passion. And could, could you just give us a view of one of your series and sort of take us to the world that you're describing and maybe pick out a key character that you, you love in some way and, and tell us about that character's world? Sure. Um, I guess of the series that I'm, I'm doing at the moment, probably the, the most popular at the moment is definitely the um, the Leah Lucra series, which is uh, the, an Irish woman warrior series. It's a it's about um, a character who I based on a, a single line reference from the you know from the Fenian narratives. Um, so basically, I created this character linked to Fionn McCool, and um, I had originally started a series called Fionn McCool, which I'm still writing. But I did a kind of a prequel with this particular character called Leah Lucra. And um, she, in the books, she's basically um, um, a sort of a, a woman warrior who's got a very sort of traumatized past. And um, the whole series is uh, about her adventures, but also how she kind of grows into a, a kind of a human being over the, the course of, of those books. I think there's probably five books out now. Uh, in the Leah Lucra series. And um, so the character grows something, you know, there's some development aspect uh, all the way through, even though each uh, sort of book uh, has its own kind of uh, particular adventure plot. Um, I wanted to to sort of go down that route because I wanted to explore uh, the whole um, um, world of the the Fianna. So um, a lot of people, even to this day, still think that uh, there was only ever one sort of Fian, and the Fianna was Fionn McCool, and that was it. Um, so a- again, this is a concept uh, that I'm that I've introduced in the books, for example, where you have uh, each Fian is um, basically usually tribally based. It's a bunch of people who come together for some sort of uh, action, whether it be sort of, uh, you know, uh, killing a local wolf or attacking another sort of uh, tribal entity. Um, um, but I decided to sort of uh, modernize that by making this particular fiend that this Leo Lucra is with as a kind of a bunch of mercenaries in a sense, which is complete fiction because it, it would never have, you know, happened. But it was a way just to sort of examine the tribal interactions. And um, the sort of the, the Fian interactions as they would have uh, worked back in the day. And talk to us a bit about, I think you say in your books that this is meant to happen in the late second century of Ireland, is where you're kind of putting it in a traditional timeline. Um, Iron Age Ireland or prehistoric Ireland. Um, and I find those notions themselves to be kind of a little interesting, like the notion of prehistory, right? Because I think the people of Ireland at the time didn't consider themselves to be prehistoric. I think they probably considered themselves to have quite a deep culture. But tell me about how do you go about immersing yourself in a world that is no longer existent? Um, basically, I have to start with the uh, the history that does exist. So a lot of the history that we use for prehistory and uh I should perhaps explain that prehistory in Ireland is the period before the fifth century when um, writing first came to the country via the church and um, records actually started uh, existing. Uh, a lot of the writing that happened from the fifth century onward um, referred to events prior to that. So you can actually extrapolate. Uh, you can also extrapolate by looking at other cultures uh, that had, a, you know, other countries that had similar cultures. And, um, in those kind of prehistoric periods, a lot of the social dynamics were very, very similar. 
they weren't as complex as societies are today. So you can actually, you can look at other culture, you know, you can look at countries in Europe, but you can also look at other uh, cultures in, in um, you know, much far flung areas and you can still get a pattern that would have been reproduced in Ireland. So for example, here in, in New Zealand, a lot of my thinking around the sort of tribal dynamics is from watching the, the tribal uh, dynamics here in New Zealand. And they would have played out exactly the same back in Ireland. I said a lot of this stuff, as I said, and um, yeah, I, I started off by saying it in the sort of the, the second century. But then, um, like you say, it doesn't really make any difference because <laughs> there are no records. All, all, you, all you have is kind of a, a fluctuating baseline in terms of time. So my first uh, Fionn book was sort of um, early second century. I've since gone back to the first century. Uh, so I've actually changed my time period because I just felt it suited better. And also because a lot of it is based in Ireland, you can you can pretty much, you know, you, you've got a lot of wee, leeway in terms of, um, in, in terms of what you can actually uh, play with. As long as you align with the the history, the, you know, the ar- architectural history in terms of standing stones and all that as well. Yeah, and standing stones, uh, you know, do crop up quite a bit uh, in your books. And I think it's it's kind of fascinating because you can see the characters themselves going, I don't know what this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is <laughs> done by the ancient ones, right? And you're like, well, ain't you ancient? I'm reading this book. Mm-hmm. You're going to be 2,000 years ago. But guess what? You yeah. know, if you came across Newgrange at that time, that would have been pretty old at that point in time. So it gives you a sense of the scale. That's right, yeah. I mean, Newgrange is, what, 2,000 years? And um, the, the time that they say sort of the the, the, the the Celts came across to Ireland, you know, it was already ancient at that stage. So the belief at the moment in academic circles is that when people came from sort of the continent and moved to Ireland, um, they would have found these uh, huge structures and um you know, they would have been venerated because they were, you know, even today, they're still pretty damn impressive. But, you know, and they would not have fully, you know, understood where they came from. You know, they would have had uh, religious connotations, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I felt also that the uh, the landscape was a character uh, often. And it's a landscape that uh, it probably is very, very different in, in many areas from the landscape of today in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, the, the big thing for me is that when people talk about ancient Ireland, uh, they're usually sort of sitting in an armchair in an air conditioned building. So, um, <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of what people uh, say or think about ancient Ireland is very much uh, based on the premise of our own existence. Um, so it's very hard for us to think as an Iron Age uh, person would think. So uh, a big challenge for me is trying to get into the headset of people back at that that period. Uh, so basically, the way I do that is is by uh, keeping the the physical stuff as real as I possibly can, and uh, also by thinking um, a lot of the English that I use is actually kind of based on Irish structure and so on. So you know, people have emotions on them; they never they're never happy. They have happiness on them, etc. You know, uh, and that kind of gives it a bit of authenticity that it probably would otherwise lack. I think. Yeah, I've done some reading about. Um forestry lately in Ireland and one of the things you refer to is the great wild in the book in a number of the books um as i understand it you know Ireland would have been pretty darn heavily forested right around the time that you speak now the neolithic peoples the peoples that built new grange they were the first guys to start actually clearing forest but i think by the time of you know when you're set, setting your film the Alucra series 
the country is probably about 70 or 80 percent forested. Um, and when you compare it to the current Ireland, the one that's featured in all the tourist maps with lovely fields and hedgerows, et cetera, this is a totally, totally different place. Uh, and, and that really comes across in your books. And, I, you know, how do you imagine that or, you know, what helps you kind of in imagining that? Uh, I, again, I guess um, I start off using uh, the basis of, of what's known in terms of, of history um, and archaeology. So Ireland at the time, uh, people are the, the, sort of the, the specialists believe that there was probably no more than 100,000 people in the entire country at that time. Um, most of them would have been based uh, on in family groups uh, or sort of uh, tribal systems. Um, they would have been very, very close, uh, completely dependent on each other. And um, um, whenever people moved into the wilderness, it, it was a big thing because uh, you had this uh, nature was uh, absolutely huge. Um, and if you actually went into the forest, a lot of the time there was a risk you probably wouldn't come back. Um, it was heavily infested with wolves. And, um, you know, the trying to get through forest back in the day, this was really dense forest that had been growing for centuries, um, probably even longer. And um, the undergrowth would have been completely clogged. People were very much dependent on certain paths um, because the vast majority of the country just would have been impassable. So people would tend to follow the same paths all the time. So you, when you when you bring all that in, it, it creates restrictions on your on your story and you have to work within that for it to actually work in a sort of a, a genuine manner so just switching back to leah lucra because she seems to travel around quite a bit um it's an interesting character because you kind of have her moving through the country and you kind of encounter these you know various experiences like i read the second book in the series which has to do a lot with wolves um, and a relationship with a part of the country that we, I guess, fairly recently called Osri, but it'd be around Kilkenny or whatever. Um, but just backing to this particular character, Leah Lucra, uh, you mentioned the fact that you kind of started writing her story based on one line uh, in the, you know, the Fionn McCool legendary cycle, and it took off uh, in terms of demand why do you think that was um yeah it's an, an interesting one I, I honestly to today i'm not really completely sure why um i guess um uh, it, it, she was certainly the the the, the favorite character in, in the initial book the initial fion book um so when i did do a sequel uh, or a prequel actually it was just meant to be a sort of a story kind of introducing uh, her uh, it was a lot darker. I don't know what was going through my head at the time, but the book was a lot darker and um, the character was a lot darker. But um, um, I guess uh, I was also dealing with the fact that she was a woman in trying to exist in a, in a very physical time, very brutal time, uh, where she was pretty much at the mercy of, um, of um, some uh, dubious characters and um, the things that she had to do to survive, um, I, I guess in some cases were quite ingenious, in other cases were just uh, very, very savage. Uh, so she's quite a complex uh, character in that respect and that um, she has to use her wits, but also her kind of um, her natural skills to survive. And I think potentially that's probably what, what uh, attracted people uh, to her. She's incredibly intense. Um, she um, she became such a, a strong character when I was actually writing it that she started 
dominating the story because uh, originally the the first film was supposed to go in one direction, but she actually came along and, and changed the direction completely. Yeah, she seems at times like almost feral. Yeah, yeah. Oh, she's yeah, she is completely feral. That that was the the whole point because. Uh, She's essentially kind of not not so much brought up with wolves, but uh, spends uh, so much time in the wilderness that she becomes kind of absorbed into it. And um, um, yeah, feral is probably a good description of her. She then has to engage with with other people, of course, uh, which creates quite a lot of the friction, quite a lot of the sort of the the tension, um, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. But yeah, she she is a lot of fun to write. Um, Yeah, I have to admit, she's probably my favorite character. And can you tell me a little bit about the readership? Is there like a demand maybe for a strong warrior woman type figure that's driven by female readership? Or do you have any sense of that at all? Uh, uh, A lot of my stuff kind of gets lumped in with uh, fantasy genre, which uh, Mm -hmm. I've become increasingly um, uncomfortable with (laughs) over the last few years. Um, that's not because I, I dislike uh, fantasy. It's just um, what I do for me is is very much uh, culturally based. It's it's not fantasy. I would call it fiction. No problems calling it fiction, but it's not fantasy really. Um, but um, there, within the fantasy genre, you're certainly seeing a lot more of what they call kick-ass heroines, and uh, there's been really a push along that line for the last few years. Um, um, I, I think it's because you have a, a much higher um, female readership in some cases, particularly in fantasy. But um, and you know, this is what people want to read. I wasn't really influenced by any of that. I just was um, sort of pulled along by the character in some respects. Um, but yeah, um, that there is there definitely is a, is a market for that. Uh, I think it probably is on the decline now. But um, if you have an interesting character at the end of the day, at that that'll keep uh, people coming back. Brian, uh, is the uh, phenomena of cosplay popular in New Zealand? Um, where people dress up as the characters and have you seen, have you seen your characters in a cosplay? Um, I haven't seen my character in a cosplay. There is some cosplay here, but um, uh, I'm not really that, that I'm not really familiar with that um, uh, grouping here. I have gone to one or two sort of, um, you know, um, uh, conferences and so on where there is con- cosplay, but um, it's not really something I'm into myself. I, I guess what's interesting with the Leah Luca character is that when I first uh, wrote her about, um, I don't know, it would have been seven or eight years ago now, maybe, um, there was no reference to her anywhere. If you looked online, there wasn't a, a thing, you know, you wouldn't find a thing on Leah Luca apart from maybe in a dictionary saying, you know, this was a character. Blah, 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 blah. Um, the, the popularity of, of the, the character was such that you now look online and um, people are, you know, quoting verbatim about this. Uh, you know, she was the first uh, sort of female warrior, as if it's fact. You know, it's quite funny to read this. <laughs> and you're thinking, you know, they don't seem to have cottoned on that this is actually, I, I made this stuff up, you know. And uh, there's all these authorities out there declaring how Leah Luca was the first sort of female warrior. Um, you have a lot of people sort of saying she was the first example of a bisexual warrior, you know. And again, this is all fiction. I, I you know, it, it <laughs> amuses me immensely when I sort of see this stuff turning up. And um, most of it, unfortunately, is sort of based on what I've written, and which has been completely taken out of context. Brian, you mentioned there being at a, a convention or a conference, and that's the first thing I've heard that sounded in the category of business, your publishing business. How, how is it that you get the word out? What's your, what's your business model and, and letting people know about these books, p- 
purchase these books and become part of your audience? Uh, my business uh, model is something uh, of a, a flexible one. Um, uh, because I've been raising kids and so on for the last few years, I've really just been doing sort of the uh, Irish Imbus work. It's probably just been 0.5% of my time for the last seven or eight years. Uh, I've been able to produce maybe a book, um, sometimes a book and a half per year, and uh, slowly you know, um, in- increasing the portfolio. Also doing quite a lot of work in terms of my own research around um, cultural belief systems and stuff like that. Um, it's only in the sort of the last sort of uh, six months that I've really started working a bit more full time on this. Uh, I still do, um, you know, a lot of freelance uh, strategic conceptual design kind of work as well, too. Um, but um yeah, so I, it's, it's really kind of just, uh, I haven't really been marketing particularly highly, but it uh, it's kind of spread more by word of mouth. Um, but now it, it does seem to be growing at a, an exponential rate at this stage. Um, uh, certainly sales are starting to increase quite dramatically. Um, and yeah, I guess I bit, have a bit more presence. I should probably mention as well too that they're, they're, um, at one stage the Leo Lucra uh, series was going to be made into a television series. It was picked up by um, uh, Michael Grace uh, of Graceland. Um, he was the guy who wrote or uh, co-wrote the the Poltergeist and uh, various other movies like that. Um, so that was all kind of ready to go. It was actually kind of I was flying over to Ireland to to catch up with the producers and so on and. Um, just before it kind of went into motion, we uh, COVID hit, <laughs> and uh, literally about uh, two weeks before we were supposed to, to meet in Ireland, um, um, New Zealand was locked down. I couldn't fly, and you know, uh, for for safety reasons, we didn't want to fly anyway, to be honest. And uh, unfortunately, um, the the series uh, never went ahead. But um, yeah, that was an interesting experience. Um, I've since had one one or two other uh, people looking at the options, uh, but um, I just haven't had time really to um, focus on pushing that side of the business. So are you free now to basically uh, shop the series around again, or how does that work? I'm starting to. So I sent some material on Leo Lucra and uh, the Bera trilogy to an Irish production company because Ireland's booming at the moment in terms of screen stuff. Um, but I really, I just do not have the time to follow it up. I'm incredibly time poor. Uh, so between producing um, various projects, uh, so I, I have a lot of uh, books to write, but I also have a whole bunch of stuff in terms of educational material, which I'm producing over the next uh, year and which I'm hoping to release as well. And conceptual stuff, you know, like uh, um, Irish conceptual model and that sort of stuff, a whole bunch of what I find interesting, which I want to achieve. I just wanted to ask, you, you kind of talked about um, the fact that your books are getting lumped in with fantasy and you're bringing more rigor to this because you're trying to transmit a certain understanding of this Ireland, you know, from 1800, 1900 years ago. Um, what are things, you know, a couple of things, if you're going to impart on people that they should, you think every Irish person should know about that time uh, now? And we use Irish in a big church sense. In other words, not just the Irish of Ireland, but, you know, the Irish globally. You would like people to walk away with and say, okay, I'm going to stick my freaking spear in the ground and say, you need to know this. Where do I start? (laughs) (laughs) 
need a big stick. Oh, Brian's no. Brian's top ten. Uh-oh. I think, I think it's a ja- javelin. Yeah. yeah. Um, God, I, I don't know where to start. I, I guess that the key thing for me was is really sort of um, just trying to get across to people that what you think is you know Irish mythology is is not you know, and uh, you need to be able to discern the difference between one and the other. Um, if you want to understand Ireland, you really have to understand uh, Gaelic culture. You really have to have some knowledge of the of the language. Um, Otherwise, you're you're really just somebody who comes along with a T-shirt, sort of saying, you know, "Kiss me a Marsh," you know, which um, <laughs> might work on St. Paddy's Day, but uh, you know, yeah. it it uh, it does not give you any credibility. Yeah, the, those are probably the those are the two main things. Um, I, I guess uh, one one reason I sort of did sort of the the genre that I did as well too is that uh, I had been hitting quite a lot of what um, what what's known as uh, Celtic fantasy. Which is basically just fantasy with sort of uh, Irish branding on it, as far as I can tell. There's no real kind of, um, uh, you know, they sometimes they'll put in a an Irish name or something like that. Um, I saw a classic recently where somebody was saying somebody had the sight, so they were saying, you know, he had the rark, you know, and rark is the Irish for it's not sight, it's actually view, it's something you see from a distance. They used the wrong term, of course, because they obviously got it from you know Google Translate, or whatever. So. Um, yeah, a lot of what I do is kind of to um, sort of counter a lot of that sort of uh, uh, misrepresentation through Celtic fantasy and other other roots. Amazon's another target. <laughs> I even understand to some degree that the word Celt or Celtic is somewhat controversial. Um, I, I think of, let's say, for example, some of the things that people automatically assume are Celtic symbols. You know, the famous stone in front of Newgrange, for example, that's a Celtic symbol. No, because it's Neolithic. It vastly predates the arrival of, of right. Celts. And I even think the term Celt is like really, you know, poorly understood. Yeah. I guess uh, there's certain words. Celt is a bit like mythology. It's a word that um, is made up um, and is, means different things to different people. Um I never use uh, the word mythology anymore. Uh, I never use the word Celtic anymore if I possibly can get away with it. Uh, it I think it's useful in terms of if you're describing the, the Celtic countries, um, that's the only time I would ever use the word Celt or Celt. Um, it, um, you have all these people, and I, I, I meet a lot of people, and uh, they're all sort of telling me that they're Celts, and I'm like, for me, it, it, as soon as you say you're a Celt, it's like you have no connection whatsoever with your own heritage. You know, you, mm. you know, are you an Irish Celt or are you a Welsh Celt? Or, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> what exactly are you saying here? You know, it's a bit like saying uh, I'm a European, but, you know, somebody coming from Germany is completely different to somebody coming from Italy, et cetera, et cetera. It, it just doesn't mean anything if you go around telling people you're Celtic, you know. Brian, a, a little while ago, you mentioned that you had you were time poor. And we do not want to add to your time poverty by keeping you on this transoceanic call much longer. But we would like to know what your Seamus plug is. Uh, I guess for the Seamus plug, I'll, I'll plug two things. One, I'll plug the, the Leo Lucra series. Uh, if you are interested in sort of adventure stories, for want of a better term, with a, a kind of an authentic Irish basis, then that's certainly one to, to look for. 
Um, another thing I will plug is that um, it's it's something that a project that I'm working on, which I'm hoping to bring out next year, which is basically a kind of um, trying to teach people what mythology is um, and what it isn't and how it can be, you know, personally relevant or not. Um, that's a kind of a, an educational project I'm hoping to bring out next year. So maybe keep an eye out on that. Um, uh, also, you can get latest updates from my uh, newsletter, which comes out. Uh, it's called Vogue, uh, V-O-F-A-D-A-G, not V-O-G-U-E. And that comes out uh, at the end of every month. You can get that on uh, Irish Imbus Substack. And um, um, yeah, that's kind of where I'll do my most uh, important announcements over the next uh, wee while. So we'll be uh, sure to include links to your website and so people can uh, track down your work. All right, thank you. Um, so just wanted to say thank you so much uh, on behalf of both myself and John and our listeners uh, to give an understanding of the work you do, how it is bringing a different more historically accurate or more historically accurate version of Irish culture to the fore. I think this is valuable work. Um, I know I certainly have been entertained uh, and reading a little bit more in this particular space as a result of reading your books. I'm looking forward, uh, as time permits, to uh, taking in a few more. So thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you both very much. Well, we really went global that time, Martin. It was great to be able to add a little New Zealand flavor to Irish stew and expand our global Irish nation even a little bit further. You know, I found Brian a tough guy to characterize, given his aversion to labels like mythology, Celtic, and fantasy. What do you think, Martin? Yeah, I think Brian, as he said at one point in the course of the podcast, was his work is devoted to revealing ancient Irish cultural beliefs. And I think that's how he likes to view his work. And I've read a, a number of these books, the Leah Lucris series and the Fionn McCool series, and I think it's a great introduction to what is, to some degree, an unknown Ireland, but it is beautifully realized. And if you want to transport yourself to a totally different dimension through time, I think it's time well spent reading Brian O'Sullivan's novels. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty with Donald Bowens on drums, Cahill O'Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com.